Fast Asleep with Gina Marie. Welcome, welcome. I'm Gina, and Marie said she might stop in. Well, we want to thank you so much for being here, listeners. We also want to thank you for taking care of us here at Fast Asleep. I know. You're very busy, so when you take the time to review or comment or subscribe, I really appreciate it. Oh, and real quick, one of you listeners wants to know if I'm the same Gina Marie who teaches us how to care for curly hair on YouTube. Ah, sorry. No, sadly, I am not that lovely lady. But she has a really nice name, don't you think? All right, today's episode. We've said quite a bit about this author. Some has been very good. Some that we have uh, reported, not so good. He was born in Wales to Norwegian parents. So some of you already know exactly who this is. He was one of six children. Now, his mother had to care for the family alone after one child died from pneumonia, and this death was followed just a few weeks later by the death of her husband, also of pneumonia. Um, Our author was only three years old at the time of these deaths of his father and sister. Who was this author? Well, if you're saying to me, it's Roald Dahl, let's move on, you'd be right, and we will. Did you know he never attended university? Instead, he traveled to Newfoundland with the Public Schools Exploring Society. That sounds lovely. And then he was a salesman for Shell Oil. Uh, During World War II, he joined the RAF and actually survived a crash landing in the Libyan desert. And everybody pretty much knows this about Roald Dahl. His first wife was actress Patricia Neal. She was a wonderful actress. They had five children. But sadly, tragedy struck this man again. His seven-year-old daughter died of measles. And this one's awful as well. His infant son sustained serious brain damage in a car accident. There is one blessing that came from this accident, however. Roald Dahl was able to team with a toy maker and a neurosurgeon to invent a shunt that eventually treated thousands of brain-injured children. Well done. There is a great deal in Mr. Dahl's life that really might explain the dark side, you might say, of his works. And these these works are often very funny and very often <laughs> filled with revenge. Um as for today's story, here's the question. Was the idea for this story, which was first published in nineteen seventy seven, was it borrowed from an Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode that appeared in 1960. Hmm. It's certainly a possibility. He didn't write that Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. No, no, no. 
Either way, as you always expect from this author, this story is very entertaining. Let's tuck in, everybody. For Rolled Dolls, The Hitchhiker. an exciting toy. A big BMW 3.3 Li, which means 3.3 liter, long wheelbase, fuel injection. It had a top speed of 129 miles per hour and terrific acceleration. The body was pale blue, the seats inside were darker blue, and they were made of leather. Oh, genuine soft leather of the finest quality. The windows were electrically operated, and so was the sunroof. The radio aerial popped up when I switched on the radio and disappeared when I switched it off. The powerful engine growled and grunted impatiently at slow speeds. But at 60 miles an hour, the growling stopped and the motor began to purr with pleasure. I was driving up to London by myself. Oh, it was a lovely June day. They were haymaking in the fields and there were buttercups along both sides of the road. I was whispering along at 70 miles per hour, leaning back comfortably in my seat with no more than a couple of fingers resting lightly on the wheel to keep her steady. Ahead of me, I saw a man thumbing a lift. I touched the brake and brought the car to a stop beside him. I always stopped for hitchhikers. I knew just how it used to feel to be standing on the side of a road watching the cars go by. I hated the drivers for pretending they didn't see me, especially the ones in big empty cars with three empty seats. Oh, the large expensive cars seldom stopped. It was always the smaller ones that offered you a lift, or the rusty ones, or the ones that were already crammed full of children, and the driver would say, I think I can squeeze in one more. The hitchhiker poked his head through the open window and said, Going to London, governor? Yes, I said. Jump in. He got in, and I drove on. Now, he was a small, ratty-faced man with gray teeth. His eyes were dark and quick and clever. 
like rat's eyes, and his ears were slightly pointed at the top. He had a cloth cap on his head, and he was wearing a grayish-colored jacket with enormous pockets. Well, the gray jacket, together with the quick eyes and the pointed ears, made him look more than anything like some sort of huge human rat. What part of London are you headed for? I asked him. Oh, I'm going right through London and out on the other side, he said. I'm going to Epsom for the races. It's Derby Day today. So it is, I said. I wish I were going with you. I love betting on the horses. Oh, I never bet on horses, he said. I don't even watch them run. That's a stupid, silly business. Oh, then why do you go? I asked. He didn't seem to like that question. His ratty little face went absolutely blank, and he sat there staring straight ahead at the road, saying nothing. Well, I expect you help to work the betting machines or something like that, I said. Oh, that's even sillier, he answered. There's no fun working them lousy machines and selling tickets to mugs. Eh, any fool can do that. There was a long silence. I decided not to question him any more. I remembered how irritated I used to get in my hitchhiking days when drivers kept asking me questions. Where are you going? Why are you going there? What's your job? Are you married? Do you have a girlfriend? What's her name? How old are you? And so forth and so forth. I used to hate it. I'm sorry, I said. It's none of my business what you do. The trouble is, I'm a writer, and most writers are terribly nosy. You write books? He asked. Yes. Well, writing books is okay, he said. It's what I call a skilled trade. I'm in a skilled trade, too. The folks I despise is them that spend all their lives doing crummy old routine jobs with no skill in them at all. You see what I mean? Oh, yes. The secret of life, he said, is to become very, very good at something that's very, very hard to do. Like you, I said. Exactly. You and me both. Hmm. What makes you think that I'm any good at my job? I asked. There's an awful lot of bad writers around. Eh, you wouldn't be driving about in a car like this if you weren't no good at it. He answered. Must have cost a tidy packet. This little job. Hmm. It wasn't cheap. What can she do? Flat out, he asked. One hundred and twenty-nine miles an hour, I told him. Eh, I'll bet she won't do it, 
I'll bet she will. Eh, all car makers is liars, he said. You can buy any car you like, and it'll never do what the makers say it will in the ads. This one will. Hmm. Open her up, then, and prove it, he said. Go on, governor, open her up, and let's see what she'll do. There is a traffic circle at Chalfont St. Peter, and immediately beyond, there's a long, straight section of divided highway. We came out of the circle, onto the highway, and I pressed my foot hard down on the accelerator. Oh, the big car leaped forward as though she'd been stung. In ten seconds or so, we were doing ninety. Lovely, he cried. Beautiful. Keep going. I had the accelerator jammed down against the floor. I held it there. One hundred, he shouted. A hundred and five. A hundred and ten. A hundred and fifteen. Go on, don't slack off. I was in the outside lane, and we flashed past several cars as though they were standing still. A green Mini, a big cream-colored Citroen, a white Land Rover, a huge truck with a container on the back, an orange-colored Volkswagen minibus. A hundred and twenty! My passenger shouted, jumping up and down. Go on, go on, get her up to one, two, nine. At that moment, I heard the scream of a police siren. It was so loud, it seemed to be right inside the car. And then a cop on a motorcycle loomed up alongside us in the inside lane and went past us and raised a hand for us to stop. Oh, my sainted aunt, I said. That's torn it. The cop must have been doing about 130 when he passed us. Oh, and he took plenty of time slowing down. Finally, he pulled off to the side of the road and I pulled in behind him. I didn't know police motorcycles could go as fast as that, I said, rather lamely. Oh, that one can, my passenger said. It's the same make as yours. It's a BMW R90S. It's the fastest bike on the road. That's what they're using nowadays. The cop got off his motorcycle and leaned the machine sideways onto its prop stand. Then he took off his gloves and placed them carefully on the seat. Oh, he was in no hurry now. He had us right where he wanted us, and he knew it. This is real trouble, I said. I don't like it one little bit. Now listen, don't you talk to him any more than's necessary. You understand? 
my companion said. You just sit tight and you keep mum. Like an executioner approaching his victim, the cop came, strolling slowly toward us. He was a big, meaty man with a belly, and his blue breeches were skin tight around enormous thighs. His goggles were pulled up onto the helmet, showing a smoldering red face with wide cheeks. We sat there like guilty schoolboys, waiting for him to arrive. Oh, you watch out for this man, my passenger whispered. He looks as mean as the devil. The cop came round to my open window and placed one meaty hand on the sill. What's the hurry? He said. Oh, no hurry, officer, I answered. Perhaps there's a woman in the back having a baby, and you're rushing her to hospital. Is that it? No, officer. Or perhaps your house is on fire and you're dashing home to rescue the family from upstairs. His voice was dangerously soft and mocking. My house isn't on fire, officer. Well, in that case, he said, you've got yourself into a nasty mess, haven't you? Do you know what the speed limit is in this country? Seventy, I said. And do you mind telling me exactly what speed you were doing? Just now? I shrugged and didn't say anything. When he spoke next, he raised his voice so loud that I jumped. One hundred and twenty miles per hour, he barked. That's fifty miles an hour over the limit. He turned his head and spat out a big gob of spit. It landed on the wing of my car and started sliding down over my beautiful blue paint. Then he turned back again and stared hard at my passenger. And who are you? he asked sharply. Well, he's a hitchhiker, I said. I'm giving him a lift. I didn't ask you, he said. I asked him. Ah, have I done something wrong? My passenger asked. His voice was soft and oily as hair cream. That's more than likely, the cop answered. Anyway, you're a witness and I'll deal with you in a minute. Driver's license, he snapped, holding out his hand. I gave him my driver's license. He unbuttoned the left-hand breast pocket of his tunic and brought out the dreaded book of tickets. Carefully, he copied the name and address from my license, and then he gave it back to me. He strolled around to the front of the car and read the number from the license plate and wrote that down as well. He filled in the date and the time and the details of my 
offense. Then he tore out the top copy of the ticket. But before handing it to me, he checked that all information had come through clearly on his own carbon copy. Finally, he replaced the book in his breast pocket and fastened the button. Now, you, he said to my passenger, and he walked around to the other side of the car. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Now, you, he said to my passenger, and he walked around to the other side of the car. From the other breast pocket, he produced a small black notebook. Name? He snapped. Michael Fish, my passenger said. Address, 14 Windsor Lane, Luton. Show me something to prove this is your real name and address, the policeman said. My passenger fished in his pockets and came out with a driver's license of his own. The policeman checked the name and address and handed it back to him. What's your job? he asked sharply. I'm an odd carrier. A what? An odd carrier. Spell it. H-O-D-C-A. That'll do. And what's a hard carrier, may I ask? An odd carrier officer is a person who carries the cement up the ladder to the bricklayer, and the odd is what he carries it in. It's got a long handle, and on top you've got bits of wood set it in. All right, all right. Who's your employer? Oh, I don't have one. I'm unemployed. The cop wrote this down in the black notebook. Then he returned the book to his pocket and did up the button. When I get back to the station, I'm going to do a little checking up. On you, he said to my passenger. Me? What have I done wrong? The rat-faced man asked. I don't like your face, that's all, the cop said. And we just might have a picture of it somewhere in our files. He strolled round the car and returned to my window. Now I suppose you know you're in serious trouble, he said to me. Yes, officer. You won't be driving this fancy car of yours again for a very long time. <laughs> Not after we've finished with you. You won't be driving any car again, come to that, for several years. And a good thing, too. I hope they lock you up for a spell into the bargain. You mean prison? 
I asked, alarmed. Absolutely, he said, smacking his lips. In the clink, behind the bars, along with all the other criminals who break the law. And a hefty fine into the bargain. Nobody will be more pleased about that than me. I'll see you in court, both of you. You'll be getting a summons to appear. He turned and walked over to his motorcycle. He flipped the prop stand back into position with his foot and swung his leg over the saddle. Then he kicked the starter and roared off. Up the road, out of sight. Phew, I gasped. That's done it. Yeah, we was caught, my passenger said. We was caught good and proper. I was caught, you mean. Yeah, that's right, he said. What you gonna do now, governor? Well, I'm going... I'm going straight up to London to talk to my solicitor, I said. I started my car and drove on. Now you mustn't believe what he said to you about going to prison, my passenger said. They don't put somebody in the clink just for speeding. Uh, are, are you sure of that? I asked. Oh, I'm positive, he answered. Oh, they can take your license away and can give you a whopping big fine. But that'll be the end of it. Oh, I felt tremendously relieved. By the way, I said, why did you lie to him? Do me, he said. Now, what makes you think I lied? Well, you told him you were an unemployed hod carrier, but you told me you were in a highly skilled trade. So I am, he said, but it don't do to tell everything to a copper. So what do you do? I asked him. Ah, he said slyly, that'd be telling, wouldn't it? Is it something you're ashamed of? Ashamed? he cried. Me? Ashamed of my job? Why, I'm about as proud of it as anybody could be in the entire world. Then why won't you tell me? Oh, you writers? Really is. You really is nosy parkers, aren't you? He said. And you ain't going to be happy, I don't think, until you found out exactly what the answer is. Oh, well, I, I don't really care one way or the other, I told him lying. He gave me a crafty look out of the sides of his eyes. I think you do care, he said. I can see it in your face that you think I'm in some kind of very peculiar trade, and you're just aching to know what it is. I didn't like the way he read my thoughts. I kept quiet and stared at the road ahead. You'd be right, too, he went on. I'm in a very peculiar trade. I'm in the queerest peculiar trade of them all. I waited for him to go on. That's why I asked to be extra careful who I'm talking to, you see. 
How am I to know, for instance, you're not another copper in plain clothes? Oh, do I look like a copper? No, he said. You don't, and you ain't. Any fool could tell that. He took from his pocket a tin of tobacco and a packet of cigarette papers and started to roll a cigarette. I was watching him out of the corner of my eye and the speed with which he performed this rather difficult operation was incredible. The cigarette was rolled and ready in about five seconds. He ran his tongue along the edge of the paper, stuck it down and popped the cigarette between his lips. And then, as if from nowhere, a lighter appeared in his hand. The lighter flamed, the cigarette was lit, the lighter disappeared. It was altogether a remarkable performance. I've never seen anyone roll a cigarette as fast as that, I said. Ah, he said, taking a deep suck of smoke. So you noticed. Well, of course I noticed. It was quite fantastic. He sat back and smiled. It pleased him very much that I had noticed how quickly he could roll a cigarette. You want to know what makes me able to do it? He asked. Go on, then. It's because I've got fantastic fingers. These fingers of mine, he said, holding up both hands high in front of him, are quicker and cleverer than the fingers of the best piano player in the world. Are you a piano player? Ah, don't be daft, he said. Do I look like a piano player? I glanced at his fingers. They were so beautifully shaped, so slim and long and elegant. They didn't seem to belong to the rest of him at all. They looked like the fingers of a brain surgeon or a watchmaker. My job, he went on, is a hundred times more difficult than playing the piano. Any twerp can learn to do that. Ah, there's titchy little kids learning to play the piano at almost any house you go into these days. That's right, ain't it? More or less, I said. Of course it's right. But there's not one person in ten million can learn to do what I do. Not one in ten million. How about that? Amazing. I said. You're darn right, it's amazing, he said. Ah, I think I know what you do, I said. You do conjuring tricks. You're a conjurer. Me? He snorted. A conjurer? <laughs> Can you picture me going round crummy kids' parties, making rabbits come out of top hats? Hmm, well then... You're, you're a card player. You get people into card games and you deal yourself out marvelous hands. Me? A rotten card sharper? He cried. Now that's a miserable racket if there was one. All right. I give up. I was taking the car along slowly now at no more than 40 miles an hour to make sure I wasn't stopped again.
We had come onto the main London-Oxford road and were running down the hill toward Denham. Suddenly, my passenger was holding up a black leather belt in his hand. You ever seen this before? he asked. The belt had a brass buckle of unusual design. Hey, I said, that's mine, isn't it? It is mine. Where did you get it? He grinned and waved the belt gently from side to side. Where do you think I got it? he said. Off the top of your trousers, of course. I reached down and felt for my belt. It was gone. You mean you took it off me while we've been driving along? I asked, flabbergasted. He nodded, watching me all the time with those little black ratty eyes. Now that's impossible, I said. You'd have to undo the belt and slide the whole thing out through the loops all the way round. I'd have seen you doing it. And even if I hadn't seen you, I'd have felt it. Nah, but you didn't, did you? He said, triumphant. He dropped the belt on his lap. And now, all at once, there was a brown shoelace dangling from his fingers. And what about this, then? he exclaimed, waving the shoelace. What about it? I said. Anyone around here missing a shoelace? he asked, grinning. Well, I glanced down at my shoes. The lace of one of them was missing. Oh, good grief, I said. How did you do that? I never saw you bending down. You never saw nothing, he said proudly. You never even saw me move an inch. And you know why? Oh, yes, I said, because you've got fantastic fingers. Exactly right, he cried. You catch on pretty quick, don't you? He sat back and sucked away at his homemade cigarette, blowing the smoke out in a thin stream against the windshield. He knew he had impressed me greatly with those two tricks, and this made him very happy. I don't want to be late, he said. What time is it? Well, there's a clock in front of you, I told him. I don't trust car clocks, he said. What does your watch say? I hitched up my sleeve to look at the watch on my wrist. It wasn't there. I looked at the man. He looked back at me, grinning. You've taken that, too, I said. He held out his hand, and there was my watch, lying in his palm. Nice bit of stuff, this, he said. Superior quality. Eighteen carat gold. Easy to sell, too. It's never any trouble getting rid of quality goods. I'd like it back if you don't mind, I said, rather huffily. He placed the watch carefully on the leather tray in front of him. I wouldn't nick anything from you, Governor, he said. You're my pal. You're giving me a lift. I'm glad to hear it, I said.
All I'm doing is answering your question, he went on. You asked me what I do for a living, and I'm showing you. What else have you got of mine? He smiled again, and now he started to take from the pocket of his jacket one thing after another that belonged to me. My driver's license, a key ring with four keys on it, some pound notes, a few coins, a letter from my publishers, my diary, a stubby old pencil, a cigarette lighter, and last of all, a beautiful old sapphire ring with pearls around it, belonging to my wife. I was taking the ring up to a jeweler in London because one of the pearls was missing. Now, there's another lovely piece of goods, he said, turning the ring over in his fingers. That's 18th century, if I'm not mistaken. From the reign of King George III. You're right, I said, impressed. You're absolutely right. He put the ring on the leather tray with the other items. So, you're a pickpocket, I said. Oh, I don't like that word, he answered. It's a coarse and vulgar word. Pickpockets is coarse and vulgar people who only do easy little amateur jobs. They lift money from blind old ladies. Well, what do you call yourself then? Me? I'm a fingersmith. I'm a professional fingersmith. He spoke the words solemnly and proudly as though he were telling me he was president of the Royal College of Surgeons, or the Archbishop of Canterbury. I've never heard that word before, I said. Did you invent it? Of course I didn't invent it, he replied. It's the name given to them who's risen to the very top of the profession. You've heard of a goldsmith or a silversmith, for instance. There experts with gold and silver. I'm an expert with my fingers. So, I'm a fingersmith. Well, it must be an interesting job. It's a marvelous job, he answered. It's lovely. And, and that's why you go to the races. Race meetings is easy meat, he said. You just stand around after the race, watching for the lucky ones to queue up and draw their money. And when you see someone collecting a big bundle of notes, you simply follows after him and helps yourself. But don't get me wrong, Governor. I never takes nothing from a loser, nor from poor people neither. I only go after them as can afford it. The winners. And the rich. Well, that's very thoughtful of you, I said. How often do you get caught? Caught, he cried, disgusted. Me? Get caught? It's only pickpockets get caught. Fingersmiths? Never. Listen, I could take the false teeth out of your mouth if I wanted to, and you wouldn't even catch me. 
I don't have false teeth, I said. Oh, I know you don't, he answered. Otherwise, I'd have had him out long ago. I believed him. Those long, slim fingers of his seemed to be able to do anything. We drove on for a while without talking. Well, that policeman's going to check up on you pretty thoroughly, I said. Doesn't that worry you a bit? Nobody's checking up on me, he said. Oh, of course, they are. He's got your name and address written down most carefully in his black book. The man gave me another of his sly, ratty little smiles. Yeah, he said. So he is, but uh, I'll bet he ain't got it all written down in his memory as well. I've never known a copper yet with a decent memory. Oh, some of them can't even remember their own names. Well, what's memory got to do with it? I asked. It's written down in his book, isn't it? Oh, yes, Governor, it is. But the trouble is, he's lost the book. He's lost both books, the one with my name in it and the one with yours. In the long, delicate fingers of his right hand, the man was holding up, in triumph, the two books he had taken from the policeman's pockets. Easiest job I ever done, he announced proudly. I nearly swerved the car into a milk truck. I was so excited. That copper's got nothing on either of us now, he said. <gasps> You're a genius, I cried. He's got no names, no addresses, no car number, no nothing, he said. You're brilliant. Well, I think you'd better pull off this main road as soon as possible, he said. And then we'd better build ourselves a little bonfire and burn these books. You're a fantastic fellow, I exclaimed. Thank you, Governor, he said. It's always nice to be appreciated. Our introduction information for this episode is from Who Was Roald Dahl? From Biography.com and other sources in our show notes. Our music this week is Seven Trees by Lee Young and Sleep Music Delta Waves from Meditation Relax Club. Remember, you can reach me at Fast Asleep with Gina Marie 44 at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And please, please keep us here for you as you comment, like, and subscribe. Thank you for listening. Code word this week? Fingersmith. Good night.